Alrighty, welcome everybody to another episode of Tree Action, the Human Forestry Podcast. Uh, my co-host Tony Tressalt and myself, Dwayne Newstater, and uh, we love talking to tree people about trees and how trees have impacted not only their career but their lives. And joining us today is longtime friend of Tony and I, and a, and a longtime arborist out there in this industry, Andrew Hordike from Smithville, Ontario, or near Smithville. So welcome, Andrew, to the show. Yeah, thanks, Dwayne. Awesome. Good to be here. I, I think, uh, you know, we'll just get right into it. I know that you're you're one of our, our loyal followers and have, have listened to a few of these. So uh, a lot of our, our, our interviewees have, have never heard it or didn't, haven't had the luxury of listening to a few like you have. So I just want to get right into it and and, and ask you what your when you think about your experience and, and, and your time with trees, where and how that began and, and it, like what first pops into your mind as the beginning of that journey for you of where trees became something of significance. Oh, for you. wow. That's a long, deep question. Um, and even though you know, it's coming <laughs> it and you're anticipating it after listening to lots of these, it's amazing how, um, things you know you, you just don't know what you're gonna say and you just try to be present but um if i had to <laughs> dial it back to a time where i had the most impact on trees was i was walking with my dad uh we go to the lake on sundays between church and skip uh-huh. some rocks and do whatever and i remember walking down this pathway which is really kind of cool because we do work at this place now. It's a water treatment plant in Burlington. And it was right down the road from our house, and I was walking through the, the, the asphalt pathway between these trees, and there's these white pines, and my dad's rubbing his hand down the pines, and he says, you know, just rub your hands down the pines and have a look here for a minute. And he's like, you know, he, and you just touch the trees, and you kind of look at it. And I just remember very vividly him saying, you know, look how complex everything is that lives here and how it's all working together. And, you know, how can you believe that there is no God? And I just, I just, every day going forward, I, you know, that I've been in the trees, I remember that moment quite often when I teach with you, I've talked about it. Um, but that would probably be the very first time that, uh, that as far back as I can remember a time with trees and connecting me to trees. And that was long before, started Arborwood or got into tree work. I was probably maybe 10 at the time. Wow. And, and so do you think that, you know, either consciously or subconsciously or energetically that that, that played a part in, in where I your career ended up going? All kinds of things impacted my life in the trees from living in the city, growing up in the city, but always going to the forests close by to home, bike and dirt, like, BMX biking and making jumps in the creeks and fishing the creeks, um, camping with the family, all the things related to trees, plus um, working in landscaping. And yeah, it just sort of evolved into me being an arborist and everything aligned. So uh, as far as your journey actually into the trees, was there a point in time where you identified that, that the trees were like, the thing for you, like whether it be climbing or working in trees, was there, was there a pivotal 
event or experience um, that you remember? I was in school for business at Sheridan College, and I was working for a landscape company uh, called Gelderman Landscaping at the time, which is also now one of my clients. It's it's all kind of really neat. Um, But there was, um, I remember we were, I was doing the weed whacking at a, at a condo site there and <clears throat> there was this big dead elm across the fence on another adjoining property. And this guy comes in and he whips out his harness and he, you know, he's a kind of a cool cat. He's like, Hey man, how's it going? And we're like, yeah, good, good, good. And I just stood back in awe. And I remember watching him climb and dismantle this tree with ropes and Something I know, you know, like I was working at Gelderman's and cutting trees and pines with no saddle, no harnesses, just dropping stuff, climbing halfway up, cutting them in half and all that kind of stuff. And this guy just blew the doors off me. And it was, his name was Bruce Hartnett. Many people know Bruce to this day. He's owner of Champion Tree Care. He's a legend in Ontario. He's, you know, one of the first people that have won the Ontario Tree Climbing Championship. And I just thought that is a freaking awesome job. And uh, at the same time, my best friend, Scott Hutton, was moving to Alberta to work for Arbor Care. And I said, you know, like, can you give Jim a call and see if he needs more people? And he did. And Jim hired me over the phone. And we got in an old Toyota shortly after that, probably a few months after that, and drove across the country and started at Arbor Care. And... Uh... So you made the decision watching Bruce take an elm apart that, hey, this might be cool. A friend's going to Calgary and you hitch a ride. So what happens when you get to Calgary? Well, the intention for me was to go Calgary and then Vancouver, BC, and then possibly to Australia. It was kind of in my sort of horizon. And I got the brakes put on in Calgary. It was a fun place. I met lots of really cool people. And there's something about Alberta, as you know, for me, that's uh, I just love it. Um, but I had, I don't know, it was, wasn't long, man. Like I would say three months of climbing there and suddenly I'm a crew lead and, you know, I'm busting fences and baseball cap on backwards and Wrangler jeans and just letting her buck. So, and I think the cool part about trees back then, 30 years ago was not very many people did it. And I wasn't really like a big sports fanatic in school. Like I I didn't play hockey. I didn't do all those things. And this was sort of like an athletic avenue or an athletic kind of thing that I could do. And I felt I was really good at um, that, you know, made me feel kind of special and made me feel kind of unique. And it was really awesome. Like, and I think that's where coming back to Ontario for visits or coming back to see family and, pictures and I mean my physique was getting like I was getting ripped you know all of it combined it was just awesome I felt free I mean, I think I went I felt like I went places that nobody else had been before yeah that's uh, interesting you know I I remember I was at the you know I, I wasn't in university I wasn't wrestling anymore and I'd always been very active in all different types of sports and when the tree climbing thing started happening for me and then when the competition first was introduced to me it was I think 80 89 I think was my first competition or 88 and uh I remember thinking man this this is because I I just tied it back to wrestling tournaments or uh football games right and I thought this is another maybe I can win at this you know and like because I, I had won at other things and man my was I ever schooled at my first competition I mean I got my 
my line stuck in the work climb and everyone left me out in the cold in Winnipeg and I was literally by myself and I resorted to free climbing like I would have in the first place had no one been watching. But, <laughs> but uh, I relate to that sports aspect of it, which I never, you know, you and I have never talked about that before. It's very interesting. Well, I mean, I played soccer, but, you know, I played 13 years of soccer, which was great. And, you know, it's okay, but it was not the same as the accomplishments and the self gratification the gratification I got from climbing trees was just well and if I remember correctly I think your first competition was a bit of a a challenge yeah it was in Waker and you rem- I, I figured we'd probably end up there at some point <laughs> um, so I was working with a guy named Chris Patterson who also a legend of you know the Prairie chapter yeah. still every once in a while we we connect a little bit and, and it's like yesterday um, just an amazing guy who came onto the crew and he was him and we had to do a competition at Arbor care to win a chance to go to the tree climbing championship. Cause he was, Jim wasn't going to let everybody go. And I remember beating Mark Smith and <laughs> Chris. Anyway, no, Chris wasn't there at the time. And, uh, and I remember we went to the bar beforehand and, a very good way to take out your opponent is to have them buy them drinks all night long. Uh, so that was part of the, uh, part of the initiation, I guess, into the competitions that I got <laughs> and thought, you know, I can handle this. Uh, however, that did not go as planned. <clears throat> right. Yeah. But I mean, it didn't deter you from continuing on in that. No, I competed all the way till 2014 and simply just because you always learn little tricks. It's great camaraderie. I had fun. I mean, my last competition, I, I I think I won aerial rescue and it was, that was for me, that was a huge accomplishment because, you know, aerial rescue is so subjective. There were so many things like you could do right or wrong, or you incorporate something suddenly a timeout and year after year, it's like you get one chance kick at the can and then to, to win it when you're like still at, you know, you're an old guy is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, overall, the experience of the tree climbing championships was amazing. I mean, it, as you know, it led all the way to the internationals. Right. So. Well, you know, and then often that, that comes up with a lot of the people that we have on the show. <clears throat> um, and, you know, I know Tony often, uh, I want to take his words, but, you know, Tony often says that there's a direct line from, from the tree climbing competitions almost to his current current position as a freelance instructor. Would, is that fair to say, Tony? Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you could you can really literally draw a straight line right through the climbing competitions, the people I met there, just the connections I made to Yeah, it's it, it is the one thread that that runs through just about everything in my career. Right. Yeah. And and Andrew, you're you know, you're I'm trying to remember how I think I think I was already involved on the international level before you were. But how exactly did you get involved with the international? I can't remember. Did I invite that I throw you into it somehow or did I, I remember? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was 2001 Milwaukee. Ah. And um, I remember meeting. Rich Kenyon, a bunch of guys from Ozzy meeting uh, Bettis under a tree, sat with Bettis, which is a whole other story on changing your career path. Um, 
and then watching Wendell Lee and the masters, like just so gracefully make that swing. And I thought, Holy crap, you know, if they can do this, I can do this. And, and then I think it was, uh, we, we were doing a demo there, which was like the, I won't quote the title of it, the nickname we gave, but it was somewhat of a, we had, we had, we had challenges. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I met uh, Ken and Rip, you and well, Norm, well, I didn't meet you. You, had, you and I were doing some demo stuff there together yeah. and Norm was there yeah, and yeah. other things. And you know, I remember Todd Kramer and Mark Chisholm in the crowd and we're all, you know, pucker factor sets in cause there's these guys that are sort of, you know, have some little bit of notoriety in the industry. <laughs> and uh, anyways, and then, and then, you know, we went to a climbers meeting and then I met up with you and Ken at the bar and suddenly next year it's like, Hey, why don't you, uh, why don't you come on and work in the events? Right. So I was volunteering and I got, I was, I was really blessed to get put in as a work climb judge right off the hop, yeah. which in turn, you know, turned into, I remember Lita coming and Tom Greenwood's wife coming to me over the years and saying, you know, your score sheets are used every single time. And that's just how, that's just a testament how consistent you score and how fairly you score. And then eventually I became head judge of the work one. Yep. And I think you were head judge of the rescue at that right. time. same time. We were kind of, you know, we had our own little competition. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Caused its own kerfuffle of things, but you know, everybody's got all kinds of things to say. Um, and then uh, I was asked to come alongside Bruce as head judge of the event, and he was chair. And uh, I think you were you, I moved up to head tech, didn't you? Uh, or was that later? Somewhere in there, I did eventually move up to that, yeah. I don't know exactly. Yeah. And then Bruce, uh, Bruce got a little sick. We didn't know at the time that was where the issue was, but it was Bruce was sick at the time, and we had no idea. Yeah. Um, and then they had asked me to step in for him. In, or no, Scott would moved into chair, and then they had asked me to move into chair. And, you know, it was amazing. Like, what a journey of 16 years, and what a blessing to travel the world with your family, your friends, your tribe, and learn so much. I mean, a lot of Arborwood's success and a lot of Arborwood's professionalism stems back to uh, what I would say would be Arbormaster and Arbormaster Canada and back in the day meeting yourself and helping me get through that mindset of what a business should look like in this industry. But also, you know, a huge part of it was the tree climbing championships and the people we met. Like, mm -hmm. you know, take it back to that comment about Bettis and you know, who am I, right? And sitting at the bottom of a tree with Bettis and just thinking, holy crap. And, you know, he's just a normal guy who loves trees. And he, I gave him a business card and he's like, he looks at the business card, he looks at me, he looks at the business card, he looks at, up at the trees and he's like, why do you advertise removals first? He says, you should be focusing on pruning tree care and do removals last, like, you know, the way it should be. And it, and the little switch goes off about your mindset. Cause even now it's all going back to like all the social medias about crane trucks and grapple trucks and Merlots and tree removal. And those are all the biggest hits, you know, on, on 
all the buzz right. in the social media. But the reality is, is like, where's all the cool stuff about tree care? I guess it's just not as exciting, but really that's where your focus should be as an arborist is saving trees and taking care of trees and taking care of tree people. Yeah. Yeah. I always, uh, I remember when I first started instructing at the college and it was something I would always, you know, I'd have businesses asking me who's the best student, you know, who's the best, who's got the best marks basically. And, you know, I'd often say, or, or I came to realize that it wasn't always the person that knew the most that would be the best, either the best employee or the best arborist, because you really, I realized I could never teach people to care or to love what they do. You know, you, you can, you can do very good marks and do very good at school and pass tests, but you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you love it. And the people that love what yeah. they do, uh, you know, that, those are the ones that really want to care for the trees, you know, and I, and, and we need all types and I don't want to alienate anybody or, or single anyone out, but, you know, we were just talking about this in the podcast before this, about what makes, what makes some people pass so passionate about what they do and where for some people it's just a job, um, you know, and, and I think it really is about finding your passion really. And if you're passionate about removal, then, then that's what you do. But Sometimes we're pa- and yeah, I think glamour is part of it. You know, the the big big wood, big problems, big wood, big excitement. <laughs> yeah, and I, I yeah, well, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I think it's where your heart is too, and and how your attitude and the value you bring to people, and you know, if you, you know, inspiring. Yeah, I think I don't know what the last podcast was I listened to I think her name was Jeanette or something Jeanette Maverick, Merrick, yeah yeah was yeah, that yeah Jeanette. Merrick. I don't know her at all but the fact that she had worked for Frank and Pete and and she brought up you know Steve Draper yeah. who is a long old friend who just was such a great arborist um, and just a great guy he had so much passion in it too but when but I, what I was getting at with her was what struck me in her podcast was how she went from back then and you know the ripple of you talking to her teaching her and suddenly she's into her own business in Kelowna all the way through the ranks of Bartlett right she her career you can just tell that she's a passionate person who loves trees spent time as a kid walking through the woods and I think those kind of people I don't care what marks you get in school you want to find people that really want to do this and want to be a part of this industry and understand the connectivity between the people that are all involved in it too. Yeah. Like it's worldwide. It's a worldwide tribe. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, and I, I distract myself or I get my, I get lost on my own rabbit trails often. And, and what I was also wanting to say earlier was, was that people, you care for trees and the people that as much as the trees, like, and what I meant when I would talk to students about that is like, you have to meld. It's a real uh, art, I guess would be the term I would use where you blend what's best for the tree with what's best for the client. And, and it wasn't just, no, I'm not doing that to your tree because you know, and you have to, you got to make, you got to draw a line for certain things. I understand like, well, if I, if, if you really want them topped, I guess I'll top them. Well, there's, Sometimes you got to make a stand, but you try first to educate and explain why. And, and that's about caring for the customer. You don't care for the persons that own the trees. Yeah. 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 Their relationships with other people, their neighbors and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, like I said earlier, it's, you know, it's 
being an arborist is about taking care of trees, but it's also taking care of tree people. Yeah. Yeah. I've often been accused of being too philosophical, whether it be by certain people in other areas of this world, but you know, I, I always start my pruning talks and it ties in, I guess, to your, to your human forest podcast that people, People in the spiritual form are like trees in the physical form. We don't necessarily heal. We seal over old wounds. We are who we are because of the environment we're in and the people that we surround ourselves with. And we can compartmentalize those things too to allow us to kind of, you know, go to places that we want to be and stay away from places that we don't want to be. (laughs) You learn from them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's part of the journey for sure. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, so you know, along those lines, and and you know, um, well, I guess I just just before we go there, like that, those um, like you mentioned the talk with Bettis and how he said you should have pruning first. Like, how do you take experiences like that and implement it? Like, how did how is there? Can you share with us how you affect change in in your business or your personal life based on that type of feedback where I can't remember the term you use, but it somehow resonates with you. And then how, how do you go about acting on that and implementing it as a change in your life? Well, that particular incident was immediate. I mean, all my business cards went in a fire and I bought new business. cards. <laughs> We're celebrating our 25 year anniversary this year. So I've been reflecting on change and where the changes happened and how the industry perceived us or people. Um, and I would say it's a constant evolution of business. You don't necessarily know everything in the beginning. You have different things that get in the way like ego and pride, but people, you get, you get schooled in quotation marks by experiences and you get educated by people alongside those experiences. And then the two together you just take what what resonates with you. And for me, it was always about creating a place that people wanted to be. And, you know, I like the party. I like who's coming with on the party. I like to be, you know, I just like to have a good time. And, um, and I think for employees too. So how do I take, I mean, you know, for the, it depends. It's all incremental stuff. Like you had a huge impact on, on Arborwood and myself as a whole, from when I started training with you guys to working all the way till 2009, where we did a whole rebrand and taught train the trainer. That was a big year. 2008, 2009 were big, big years. You know, Tony was there and just amazing. Right, right. Um, it's hard to answer that question. There's just so much that, you know, but if I find something that really works for me and it feels good, yeah. And it feels like that my customers are going to benefit from it. My employees are going to benefit from it. I'm going to benefit from it. Then I'm going to go with it. Right. You know, when I see a reaction on somebody about a new device, I, I, I'm all, I'm, I do hesitate because everybody likes new stuff all the time. But <laughs> if it's a process or a system that's going to make business easier and it's going to make us more money at the same time, where we can pay more or 
provide a better atmosphere for the employees to be, then that's what we'll do. We'll follow it. We'll pursue it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that yeah, kind of the question? Yeah, it, it, well, how, let's, um, yes, absolutely. Thank you. The, um, the changes, um, I, you know, people that have, we talked earlier about your competition and stuff. Do you remember your first climbing system, apparatus, configuration, whatever you want to call it? Yes, sir, I do. <laughs> it was none. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was like freehand. Uh, give me a, I think there's a piece of rope on the truck to pull that chainsaw up here and cut the top of this tree out. And then we can flop the peg into the parking lot with the other branches on it. No problem. Um, and then it was, I seen Bruce Hartnett and got introduced to Arbor Care and was funny now, like, you know, Jim calls us up and he's like, Hey, can you go to UFS and universal field supply in Toronto in Mississauga? I think it is. Cause he was a Toronto boy, eh? Jim Fisher who owned Arbitrary. The founder and starter of Arbitrary. Yeah. 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 What are, he just, we've reconnected again the last years. It's awesome. But I remember him asking specifically for this large eye, uh, beaner screw gate, aluminum screw gate beaner with an eye, right? Like a fixed eye on it. Cause that was like the shit. <laughs> like everybody, you know, everybody had to have it and you could tie your anchor bend or whatever on it backwards and it didn't have to fall on the spine or any of that stuff. And it was a screw gate. So that's what we started on was that's I, so I'm like, I'm buying one for me too. If he, if the boss wants one, then I want one. And Scott's like, yeah, well I want one. So, <laughs> and then I got growing. And I think I entered the industry like just after Manila rope sort of exited. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I got to climb on a what was a 16-strand orange uh, and white line. I had it for a long time, and I tied that hook on there. And I don't think I untied that hook for probably the first six months. Right. And it was, you know, uh, it was. I think it was tied on with a with an anchor bend. I can't remember, but I did climb on a tie line hitch. Okay, and. I was relative, you know, I'd, it would always roll out on me and like, we'd, you know, we'd, I'd like not roll out all the way, but it would roll and you readjust, roll and readjust. And, and remember he's Mark Smith at the time. He's like, well, just throw another wrap up top. So I threw another wrap up top and that sort of helped. And then the figure eight would stop it from rolling out, but you just got used to putting the figure eight between your two knuckles and run the thing a little further reach. That's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that floors me to this day was with the cable core lanyard on a leather Buckingham saddle. I, I was privileged to have independent leg straps, unlike many people that had the butt strap right. that worked there. Um, and I got this harness from Jim. It was awesome. It felt good. Uh, but was the, uh, the Munter hitch uh -huh. on a cable core lanyard and thinking about that, like trying to teach the staff today, on new lanyard systems or talking about them within our, you know, where to, where to attach, you know, attach the inside D's outside D's. Now do you attach, you know, how do you do this and that? And good thing we have Mark Odette, who's been an awesome bank of knowledge there. But uh, the, uh, you know, like a Munter hitch, you think about that, like just, do you remember that? Well, I, I remember mine was a sheet bend. Like I remember, yeah. I, you would hang over the D-ring, you would hang the hook, yeah. you would hang your snap forward, and then you would run the snap yeah. behind the other 
side of the lanyard up uh, and then through the D-ring. Like it would, the snap would go through the D-ring. Yeah, it was basically an overhand knot on the D-ring. And that's when you put weight in it, that's what held you. Yeah, and then you could, you could, you could manipulate the tail to lengthen it and to shorten it. It was, it, yeah. it was adjustable, not in right, a, right. In, not extremely conveniently, but nevertheless, at least it did adjust. And yeah, that's, but we got good. Oh yeah, you could adjust it pretty, pretty slick, Willie. And yeah. and the end of it was never secured to anything. You just it was long enough that it would just kind of had enough weight. It would just stick out the back. Like I never ever thought about coming off the end of it or anything like that. But yeah, um, yeah. you know, and it was used primarily to if I needed to stop on the way up or if I had to cut a bigger than normal branch, which that could mean anything from three to six inches, like on the way up into tying in, then I would put a lanyard on. But I, I didn't really even use it that much um, when I would work or prune a tree to position myself. Very rarely would I do that. I would just stay on my climbing line. But then I would use it for, for removal, right? So when I was doing yeah. removal, that's where it was really employed. Never did use a climbing line for removal. <laughs> like, I don't know about you, but in a removal, I didn't use my climbing system. It was hanging off my belt, but... It was there just in case or to pull something up like an empty, like a chainsaw or bring it back down a rigging line. But never like cut and toss one lanyard. And, just, and I got pictures of me. I was looking at them the other day, you know, no hard hat, baseball yeah. cap on backwards. Ear, had earmuffs. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and safety glasses, but I like Wrangler jeans. And I don't know if you remember the Wrangler jeans with the little... Yeah. Fray, fray marks all the way around my leg, but I had a chain come off and wrap around my leg of a Sash Domar 143 marks through the chain in a, in a, I don't know, I think I was bucking and it wrapped around my leg. And, you know, I thought it was cool to like, go through the washing machine and all those little spots frayed, you know, yeah. like all teeth marks, they just cut in enough to make it fray. So it looked cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was it like it's not you know well, you know it was the same for me I, there was no it, the lanyard was yeah it was a used for removals only I didn't ever use my climbing system and, and no, uh, no one hand and a chainsaw like you're way out on your system and you're getting to places like and, you know people are taking pictures and you're you're you know I remember that like the O2O yeah. trick the aluminum chainsaw this brap yeah. Like what an awesome device! I wish I could have one of those. Right now. I still have one. I still have one. But uh, the uh, I remember also using a big handsaw, a Tuttle Tooth handsaw, in a big scabbard. Like it was a long one, and and I have pictures of me dismantling a poplar with a bandana and t-shirts with the sleeves ripped off, yeah. and a red bandana. Well, I never used a big long saw, but I you know I know that you use that in the competitions because <laughs> like my height. Your height made it a fair advantage that way that you could get to the bell. <laughs> I don't remember if I used it in the comp or not, but maybe I did. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't use it on footlock to give you that extra reach. <laughs> I remember on my first footlock, it was 17 and a half seconds. I was on top of the world. Chris Patterson and I trained and trained and trained for that. And it was like. But, uh, what, you, know, you know, you think back to the beginnings and what we did and so on. And you think to it now, like how would, how would you describe the progression and the changes and, and 
you know, what it's meant for the industry or how it's impacted the industry and, and how, you know, can you, like, as you view the timeline of events, what, what, what catalyst of the change, what, you know, what, what pivotal points do you recognize in the career of arboriculture that's brought it to where we would say it is today and it's still moving? I would say that, first of all, I was super grateful to be in the ITCC along the, the, along the sides of some of the great people that climb and great techs and great judges who brought all kinds of really cool devices, ideas to collectively <clears throat> together, which I think really started the aboricultural evolution. Um, you know, it was pretty slow going, like everything in today's day and age, it was slow going up to that point. And all of a sudden, you know, 20 years ago, things start to compound a little bit. And then 15, it's happening faster. And 10, it's happening faster. But I would say in the last 10 to 15 years is when it really started. And in the last five to 10 years is when it's really propelled and escalated. And the things that started all that, you know, I, I feel really honored to have been a part of um, the growth, I would say, alongside of many people, not just me, like of the rope links and the rope runners. And I, I, I love, I know there was hard stumbling blocks along the way with a lot of people in the industry and I don't hold it against them because we are all emotional beings. But sticking our ground on that device, and even in Arborwood, ITCC, it wasn't about having control. It wasn't about fear. It was about respecting safety and respecting what was right and what kind of an impression we're going to give or what kind of ripple we're going to send through the industry. And I, Kevin and Bingham and I have talked about this to this day. I still hold him in high regard for one of the most uh, innovative people in the industry. I find, I just, I, you know, I absolutely love him. And I remember him showing up to the, uh, it was Rip, I think yourself, myself, Scott Prophet, and I'm not sure if Mark Bridge, I'm pretty sure Mark Bridge was there. He was. And like, I got this new device. I'm wondering if I can try it in the, in the, in the work climbing world. We're kind of like. It was in Chicago. Yeah. And it was like the most primitive form of the rope wrench. What was that, 2007 or 2010? Anyways, doesn't matter. And and uh, we debriefed on and we thought, we went on the pros and cons, you know, sort of a mini SWOT analysis, for lack of better words. And we came back and we said, yes, we'll let you try it under, you know, this supervision, but then we need to kind of figure out how we're going to deal with it. And he freaking didn't show up on time for roll call. Yeah. And we had to DQ him. Yep. And we had to DQ him and he was pissed. And, you know, and rightfully so. I mean, I would have been too. You fly all the way in. I mean, Milwaukee to where, where he lives, Detroit to Chicago is not that far. So it's not like you flew across the world. But still, I mean, it's your one shot, your one chance, your one opportunity to get in there. And, and it was a bummer to have to do that. But, you know, the tighter the rules, the higher the performance, right? And anyways, so he went back to the drawing board and it went up and did its thing. And, yeah, there's been lots of bumpy things along the way, but he ended up coming back with a device that worked 
and then the rope runner. Those two things alone, I think, have mentality in the industry. Definitely, they've been huge. I, I think, you know, I'm not sure that all the listeners, I think some would remember, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people remember it differently. And I don't know how many people get to hear the, you know, there, there was a lot of, how do I put it? You know, you meant, you've alluded to it, like grumblings and rumblings about, you know, the, the, the ITCC Rules Committee and the Technical Advisory Committee and the chair, which was you at the time, you know, standing in the way of progress and not allowing. And I don't know how many people understand, like, how much uh, thought and discussion and consideration, like, truly went into the whole process and trying to do oh, the right thing, you know, like, maybe you could just it, 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 try to explain, like, what it's like being in a leadership role, like, in charge of the ITCC and having something like the rope wrench, you know, being conceived and introduced and, and, and your arborist side, the, the innovative, the gearhead that, that most arborists are, certainly anyone involved in competition or whatever level it is, you know, and being intrigued by it, but then also having to uh, make a decision that's, that's imparts the best wisdom and, and, and preserves the safety and integrity of the event. Can you, can you explain how you go through that? And maybe it can help people understand what it's like. Being involved in the ITCC was the best times of my life. When I became chair, I made friends all the way through, all over the world. When I became chair and was faced with those decisions at that time in the industry, where social media was just getting big as well, it almost ranked at one of the worst times of my life. Because I went from making friends to making enemies. And like I said earlier, I like everybody along for the ride. I like the party. But I don't think I don't think people thought long term enough to see what we were doing that, you know, they just got too wrapped up in trying to defend a friend that had a really cool device. Um, I think, if anything, we propelled uh, advancement in the industry by being strict, by being taking into consideration all those things, because if we did not do what we did, that device nor the rope runner would be what it is today. And I'm not saying that we take credit for that. There's absolutely no credit taken there. That is Kevin Bingham's design 100%. But I think he needed that time and that period, just as much as the industry needed that time and period of certain strictness, tighten the rules, make sure it's the right device, get insurance on it, get a, you know, get an engineered rating, get things done on it properly. Well, one of the big holdbacks was a lack of instructions, was a lack of how to use it. Lack of instructions, lack of testing, lack of all that stuff. But, you know, it was also change and change is to be feared and resisted. But so here we are as a group and we're debriefing on this and looking at, you know, we have some very, very influential people in the committee, not just from like a social media influencer these days, but people that had notoriety in the industry that knew the products knew the systems, knew the testing, understood the whole uh, process. And they were, they all contributed great points. And then to have to lead that and kind of make decisions along the way, regardless if you agree with or disagree with any of the decisions as a leader, you had to just go with what the majority said and, and represent the committee as a whole. Um, 
But in this case, I agreed with everything in the way it went to the point where I wouldn't allow it in my business either. And I think it was a wonderful process for the industry as a whole. It just made people realize that it just takes time. Like things don't have to be thrown out there. You know, look at how many products have been recalled in our, because people have fallen or people have hurt themselves just because somebody needed to be cutting edge or needed to be the next cool thing, right? Like take the time to understand the limitations of the device and take the time to understand um, how it works in your system. Unfortunately, I don't climb much anymore, so I'm not as in tune, but it still rings true when you have the responsibility of a leader in a business or a leader of the ITCC or anything that could could influence the industry could be just one person on social media. Take the time to understand what you're talking about and make sure it's used in a safe manner. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? I mean, yeah, yeah. that was a loaded question. And your question went quite long, so I forget the first part of it. But after about the third comma, I think I'm starting to catch on. It was just, it was just the, you know, if you to just take everyone back to that point in time and how like what the industry was like, what what the concerns were. Like you mentioned, we had to. What were the deciding factors in saying no? We're not going to allow the rope wrench at this time. Like what was what was trying? What were you trying to preserve and protect, and why? And and do you remember? Yeah, we were actually looking out for the greater good of the industry. And if we released, if we endorsed this product in the state that it was in without instructions, without testing, without, you know, our due diligence, we would say, okay, to the whole industry and, you know, say, this is good to go. And with how much the ITCC influenced how people climbed, we were scared that people would get hurt on it and people would actually fall. And we had, there was just nothing there that was fit for purpose at the time. There was no insurance. He didn't have insurance. He didn't have, you know, backing of a bigger company. And, and I didn't mean for this to go down and slag anything. If anything, I just really hope this boosts up anybody that wants to invent stuff to align themselves with somebody that's really good and, and grow it. You know, there was opportunity there for people to, on the committee to steal an idea. And what the best part about it was, is nobody did. And they went alongside him and said, how can we help you? That was the coolest part of it all. So, so from, from the liability perspective, like you say to, to, so one thing I'm hearing is that there was like, if ITCC at the time were to endorse something, it almost gave it a tacit blessing or approval of, of fit for purpose and, and so on. And then it like, it would kind of go like wildfire and, Ultimately, nobody wanted that responsibility and genuinely felt that it, there could be issues with it from a safety perspective. Is that, was that the primary concern or were there others? No, that was the primary concern. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely convicted. That was the primary concern. And, and was like I remember there being discussions of the posterity of the event even because if, if something, heaven forbid – the worst case were to occur or multiple cases of fatalities yeah. regarding then how does that end up reflect on the event as well? Or if something happens during the event on it as well, I think that was also part of it. Right? Well, yeah, and then you're shutting down an event that is what bring that brings everybody together. And, you know, looking back now, I wouldn't change a thing. 
as painful as it was, sometimes I wouldn't change a thing because, as I mentioned before, the tighter the rules, the higher the performance. And I believe strongly in being fair and being you know, creating a safe environment in this. And, you know, the ITCC too, like it was at jeopardy if something were to happen. I mean, we already, we know an accident happened at tree climbing championships, which could have shut it all down. And, um, you know, we ran a tight, tight ship there. And I don't mean a tight ship, like we were a bunch of tight asses and didn't let anything go, but it was well run machine um, at that time. And unfortunately, some people don't like that. But I think if you were, or any of us were to talk to Kevin today, I think he'd be grateful too. Um, you know, what an amazing thing to have influenced the industry so much, even today. Like my kids, my kids are climbing on that. So here we sit, we can talk about what our foresight might have been. But, you know, you know as a parent, you're going to protect your child no matter what. You'll fight tooth and nail to the death for them. And I had no idea that my kids were going to be climbers, but they're climbing on those devices today. Yep. And I feel yep. really good that it's gone through the ringer the way it has. Right, right. And Tony, you know, you were part of that process. I mean, you were certainly what you've been a tech in the work climb for many years and were there for the whole uh, the whole rider experience we're talking about. What's, what's your, you know, recollection and input on the process that took place over those years? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with Andrew. I think that, you know, we, as people that, you know, could make decisions on what could be used at competitions and what couldn't be used and what we would accept and what we wouldn't was um, highly influential because, I mean, I know early in my competition career, I'd see something in a master's challenge and then that Monday I'm doing it, you know, at work. You know, that was, that was one of the reasons you went when you were a young <laughs> climber. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen, you know, rope wrenches hooked up upside down because somebody saw it at competition, you know, and then, well, I got to get one of those and they get one. And no, I think that that was, you know, I always sensed that that was the driving force behind all of it, that we realized that the ITCC, while ultimately we were sitting there playing a game, what was permitted there became acceptable industry practice, whether we wanted it to or not. So I always appreciated the fact that Andrew and the people that were responsible for making the decisions, you know, made those decisions the way they were and pushed it and held those standards because it, it has to be right. Cause we're not just talking about paint in the porch, a different color. You know, we're talking about people yeah. hang from these things and, you know, and, and it was good. And I'd agree. I think that, yeah. you know, the device, the rope wrench as it became, and then the rope runner wouldn't be the same today if they hadn't have gone through that. And it could have been, you know, and I think a lot of people lose the perspective and didn't have the person when you're a comp, when you're a competitor and you get to ITCC, it's easy to get in a bubble and not see the bigger picture. But then having volunteered for so long, it was, I could see that bigger picture and I always appreciated that. And I think that's where some people kind of got confused is they didn't see the big picture. You know, they saw somebody that they liked and admired being turned down for something they were passionate about and really wanted to do, but they didn't understand that, you know, one first yeah. and foremost, the turndown wasn't about the device. The first, it was about the not showing up on time for a meeting. And yeah. the other part of it was that, you know, what, yeah. what we permitted, what we did, you know, there was, you know, it was going to go literally the master challenge could be on a Sunday and those tools and techniques would be being used Monday morning. I mean, it's just, it's just yep. the way it was. It's the way it is. A lot of, you know, a lot of diamonds came out of that process, not just 
the, the rope runner being a diamond itself or the rope wrench being a dimer itself. But even the people that were on the committee, the pressure that we were under, um, you know, also gave us clarity and gave us, you know, reasons. Like, I think, I think all in all, the best outcome came because we, like everybody as a whole went through it together under, you know, not only that, like, you know, you're the question I asked was when this all started, you know, what pivotal changes have occurred and what times and, you know, I, you know, you, you know, I think absolutely, probably if you were to pick one thing that has been most significant in changing the industry, the wrench is certainly part of it, if not the ca- the initial catalyst, because you look at SRS and like SRS is is it, it is where it is today because of that that I that 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 device and you know him even taking it as far as he did you know and and introducing it when he did and and ITCC putting the brakes on it and saying this needs to be flushed out further and for all the like it 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 made SRS what it is today which is to me the single biggest change that's occurred in the last thirty years you know it's. It's literally revolutionized. It, it's, it's basically doubled the options that climbers have at their disposal for how to work a climber into a tree, right? Like it's freaking brilliant. Yeah. And, and, and the wrench was the impetus for that. Not just that, like look at what, you know, being reverse engineered into the chicane. Like when you get, like, yeah. you know, that's been said many times when you get copy, you really got something, right? And let's face it, yeah. that's kind of what happened there or is what happened there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're done seeing the evolution of all of that yet. You know, and I think back to Hubert and uh, the the founder and, and the guy that, that started SR, um, ART, you know, and he was always of the opinion that the industry will go to a uh, device type uh, system, a, a mechanical hitch of types, right? Which, you know, yeah. even the zigzag is experiencing way more reception i think because of the ranch itself and all that process and even you know the look at all the results it had yeah yeah i mean it, it was just a flush out into the market because it was a big company and it didn't have the same you know people didn't didn't give it the same criticism at first because it was you know like it was a big player yeah and it had it was piece of shit <laughs> When it first came out, I mean, it was it had problems. Yeah, yeah. But it too had to go through a recall and other things. But you know, the difference is, is I don't know whether or not there's been many recalls on the other devices. So, but you know, either you know, there's there's so much there about just relating it back to our industry and change. And yeah. I mean, we are constantly changing. We're constantly evolving in this industry and. I seen it today, you know, just this past weekend, Mark Chisholm, I had dinner with him on Thursday night. And then Mark, Mark Godet, who works for us, uh, both of them, you know, doing a comparative debate in at the vertical expo for Maple Leaf Ropes there yeah. um, on RS versus SRS. And people just loved it. I mean, there's limitations and benefits to both. Yeah. You know, why is it that some of the best climbers in the world are still working on an MRS system in the masters yeah. or in the work climb at the internationals? Because it's smooth <laughs> and it can be just as fast. Yeah. And, you know, you'll have your hard nose. Nope, this is faster, faster, faster. But I'll tell you what, 
I said, I would not, I could be the fastest guy on SRS and I would not want to go head to head with Mark Chisholm or, you know, Bettis on a moving rope system. They probably just make you look just like new person. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, I just, what a privilege to have been a part of all of that too. As much as it was hard, it was really a privilege. It was amazing. And, you know, it's amazing to have this forum to, to talk about that because it really is true. A lot of people didn't know. A lot of people didn't know that our heart and soul was poured into it. We actually gave a shit. We cared. And we really wanted, we, we wanted it to be good. But it just wasn't. Ready. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's there's brief points of times where I, you know people can listen or hear because they're at the right place at a conversation at a trade show or at a at a conference. But you know, this was an opportunity to you know, and I I didn't know we were going to go here specifically at all. It just but now at least there, there's some there's it, there's some record of it that people could go listen to the chair at the time talk about what you went through. You know, which I think is valuable. It's like Don Blair said and you know when we started this whole podcast and he was one of our first guests you know he said this is an excellent thing you're doing because when one of us old arborist dies and a library burns down yeah <laughs> and uh without capturing it somehow you know and, and we're only getting glimpses in this podcast you know and i don't know where it's all going to go and, and and so on but you know in some way we're preserving some of that those histories and those stories and those that want to go find it can listen to it and hear it and, and not it and listen rather than, than uh, have to read it or find a, an article somewhere, which is good too. Don't get me wrong, but um, you know, it, it just, it, it always brings it back to this whole human forest thing. Like if you think about the a forest and, and the, the gradations in a forest and the different species within the forest and, and it's evolution, you know, like, I don't know what it's like when a forest fire goes through a human forest, but, but, you know, here we are, you know, how, I always ask people this question at some point in, in the interview, and it feels like a natural segue for me right now. Like, how do you feel being part of the human forest has impacted you? And we've been talking about competitions and, and, and trees and arbor culture, but how about you personally? in your personal life or your spiritual life or just in general, you know, I realize it's sometimes difficult to disconnect uh, someone that's been in the trees as long as you have, but how does, do you feel that the trees are being part of trees has impacted you personally? Oh man. <clears throat> the other day I met with a client and she was so grateful I haven't seen her in years. She's been a 20 year client and I've passed her on to others that work here. And she was just so grateful to, for me to have made time to come out and see her. And I remember touching this butternut tree, walking by and, you know, you just put your hands on it. You get that sort of kinesthetic experience of, and memory of when you used to just grab that tree and climb it, you know, and, and you could smell it, you can feel it. And it was a moment there where I was just like, man, I just love the fact that I was, I could be in this industry because I've learned so much from other people, from the trees themselves and how they function. Um, you know, we're one of the biggest brewers of compost tea in Canada. And, and you start to think about all the microbiology and the microcosms that are happening in the soils that, that make 
trees function. And most people are thinking about the tree and the flare and the, the leaves and the, what's above ground. And they forget about all this stuff underground and how rooted we are and everything. And together, you know, we're all a bigger, there's a bigger thing going on spiritually between us all. Um, but all of that combined just particularly learning about all the microbiology and the sustainability, like a tree is a sustainable organism in itself, a system so highly organized it repeats itself. And business is meant to be that way. We're meant to be that way. Um, it's a complex thing, but I think for me personally, uh, I look at people differently. I, I love connecting with people. And I think particularly in the last few years, like some of the experiences that we've had has been good in that aspect. Um, but I also can now compartmentalize people out of, you know, that don't, don't really, I shouldn't say serve me. I don't really like that comment, but I can compartmentalize, you know, people out that don't really contribute to a better me. <laughs> There, I'm grateful for the purpose that trees have given me. Ah, interesting. You know, I, I find myself, I think about it a lot because, you know, these podcasts bring me back to it all the time. And, you know, I was I was pondering, you know, how trees, we're like trees, but not, you know, like we can move and trees can't. But I, it struck me the other day, well, just, just yesterday or the day before I went on a walk, a tree that's that's, you know, it sustained some storm damage and it's, but the tree is a really cool tree, but it is what it is because of what it's gone through. And, you know, I think for me, it was, a, it was suddenly, it was like, you know, we are who we are because of what we've gone through. And even those, those people that don't, or those experiences that, that, that are difficult or hard, you know, it, it, trees don't have legs, so they can't run away from it but they endure it and it changes and it makes them even more beautiful or, or different or just who they are. And I think we're kind of like that too, even though we do have legs, we don't know. We have legs, but we can't run away from it either. Oh, we can't. Exactly. You know, you're, not gonna, you're, you're rooted in your community. Yeah, exactly. And your roots are what hold you steadfast in that. If you choose to change careers and do something different, it doesn't ever take away from the fact that you were part of this community. Right. You know, you may have just changed into something else, but we can't run from it. We are who we are because of the experiences we've had. I mean, if you were bullied or you were, you know, you're going to have some of those scars and you're going to empathize with people in a different way. Yeah. If you were, you know, very strategic and you had lots of successes and lots of wins and, you know, that, that, help, that you start to see how that works and it's like you can encourage other people to do the same. I think where things digress is when people and they see a lot of this in the arborist industry is when pe is ego that's where the accidents happen that's where the things digress and that's when people get out of the realm of the human forest yep you you separate yourself from others and we all go through it right? it's an ebb and flow we, we're in and out of ego all the time and pride and and other things um but it's definitely made me conscientious of it. Well, I think it, we lose our focus of 
the the forest and we focus on the individuals. And I remember Shigo always saying, you know, Alex would always say that trees didn't come in singles. They didn't, they didn't, they're not meant to be singular organisms. They're part of a community called the forest. And, 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 and we're part of that too. And when we get in our ego, we become singular focused, not, not focused on the community. Right. And of course we're all guilty of it, or at least I can certainly say I'm, I can speak for myself, but it's one of the reasons I, I like the term human forest because it reminds me that I'm not, it is a we program, right? <laughs> not a, it's not an I program. And uh, yep. life, you know, yep. when I say program here, I'm meaning life. And uh, yeah, so, yep. and, I, and then really when, the impetus of tree action is what are people's, how do people feel or think about that is kind of why I asked this question, just to get the different takes and, and, and perspectives. Well, you know, I've always had, I found it funny that you, you've got, you're doing this. I think it's awesome. Not funny. I think it's awesome. Um, Cause I've always said it, right? Trees in the yeah. people in the spiritual, people in the spiritual form are like trees in the physical form. Yeah. We don't heal. Yeah. We seal over old wounds and those things are always with us. And your, your unconscious mind is so much more powerful than your conscious right. mind. People don't realize, but you know, like look at here now, like, being in this industry for 30 years, if 30 years ago you told me I was going to have a 22-year-old, 23-year-old daughter that's competing in the different chapters and going to the internationals and I'm going to have a son who's competing alongside, you know, your son and others and some of the greats and you're just kind of like, holy shit. <laughs> Like what an impact that is. Like now it's even spreading further. Yeah. And, and I had to, I got, I was taken back. I don't know if you remember, but we were teaching at train the trainer in camp Caroline, not that long ago. And I think it was like 50% of the class had university degrees in something different than arbor culture. Yeah. And we tried it all out and they changed their course and their focus. And, you know, they're like, Oh man, I wish I found this sooner, but obviously they found it at the right time. That was for them. Yeah. And I came back from that program and my son Bailey had come to our bedroom and he's like, Hey, I want to talk to you guys. And he's like third year university, right? He's like 95% average in statistics and mathematics. And like the equations he could solve are just ridiculous. And he just said, you know what? I, it's not what I love doing. I love climbing trees and I think I, I don't think I want to be in university anymore for this. And I said, well, you should probably finish what you started. We've always taught you to finish what you started. And he's like, yeah, but uh, he's like, I'll give it a week or two and then we'll talk. And he was checked out. And, you know, I watch him climb now and I just look at, how awesome it is. I watched Mackenzie climb now. I look how awesome it is. I, I, I just think, you know, you, if that is what you like and that is your purpose, then go for it. But you think about how much we've influenced our kids in the industry along the way. It goes much beyond like our, our human forest or our influence, our ripple or whatever it might be, our connectivity to this industry goes way beyond and it goes generations deep. Mm -hmm. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, Tony, you, you, you're the, I mean, third generation, it's 
is what you know your experience has been. Like, do you? I don't know if I've ever asked you this or we talked about it, but like, did you see a, like like your father was more than just a, a, a tree company owner? Like, he really genuinely liked tree work too, didn't he? Yeah, my dad never owned a company. He always worked for others. Um, but he really got, you know, came from a forestry background when he got into arboriculture. I mean, honestly, he got into it probably just because that's where the jobs were. But he really ended up loving it and was, you know, very pivotal at certain points, you know, in his career with people and meeting people and was, you know, became that, you know, a kind of a fixture in the industry, if, you know, locally, a little bit on the on the East Coast. And yeah, he just... um he really did, you know, he really did have the passion to love trees and nature. And he imparted that upon me and my brothers as well. You know, that, you know, by the time I was 18, I probably spent more time outside than I ever spent inside. Um, which just, just what it was, you know, we just didn't, you know, we were always camping and hiking and doing stuff outside. And then, you know, I have two older brothers, both of which have been and or are currently arborists. You know, my oldest brother, Ben runs a tree company. That's their 33 years in business now. Um, and my brother in between us, I'm the youngest of three. Mark has been an arborist off and on. He's my brother. Mark's had a lot of jobs, uh, but he has fallen into the field. So we've all ended up doing it in one one way, shape or form. And it's passed that on. Um, you know, for my daughter, I think it pretty much stopped dead. I don't think she wants anything yeah, to do with yeah, trees, yeah. but that's all right. She'll find her own, her own way in this world, too. Um, yeah. So it, it is it is interesting to see those things, you know, move forward and to watch you know, I see, I see Andrew's kids and I see your kids, Dwayne, and, you know, having known them for so long and, you know, see, remember them being just toddlers at climbing competitions. <laughs> now I'm the old gray guy and, <laughs> and shit, but if they learn anything, at least they'll learn how to win more than I did. I could, I could teach them. How to win. I'm not a good example, but I can be as a horrible warning. Like, don't be like that guy. <laughs> well, you know, I found it interesting in Mark Christmas podcast. He talks about that. He said, you know, he always reminds people that they're that he's the, he's lost more competitions than anybody because he's he's one of the longest standing competitors, and he said I have literally lost more times than I've won by far, right? And and he said yeah. nobody's lost more events than I have. <laughs> And I found that quite interesting. I've forgotten that we had that part of our conversation, and it's a really neat way of looking. At it. It's true too, you know. And it, yeah. and if and if and it, what he was talking about at that point in time was how that, you know, you can let experiences like that take you one way or another. You know, trees do what they do because it, they're, you know, they're nature's things. But the example is you adapt and overcome. I think that's what you're talking about, Andrew, when you say the human form of people is like the trees or the the human soul is like the tree's natural form. And everything has an impact Correct. and changes and affects them, but it makes you who you are. And you can either choose to embrace that or you can choose to resist it. And uh, yeah. that's that, I think, is the real sign of maturity or and what I like to think we learn that trees offer us freely if we're just open our eyes to see it. Correct and continue. You can relate that back to, you know, what you guys are talking about that, like, you know, trees can't run from their problems and neither can we. It reminds me of one of my favorite Victor Frankl quotes, which is, you know, when when you can no longer change the situation, you are forced to change yourself. Yeah. And I think that's a lesson that, you know, you can you can definitely learn from trees. 
And then, you know, Andrew's comment that he wants edited out that, you know, I, I don't edit it out at all. Um, you know, there's, you know, when you compartmentalize certain people in your life, that's, you know, that's nothing more than, I guess the terminology this day and now is setting boundaries, yeah. right? And trees are really, really good at setting boundaries. And I think as people, we need to get better at setting boundaries too. Yeah. You know, there's a few truisms I have in my life. And one of them is you will become the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. So choose those people wisely. Um, and that's nothing more than a boundary, right? Um, trees do have to do the same thing. Um, I think that we can learn to do that. And there's nothing wrong with setting those boundaries. Yeah, I was just up there a couple of weeks ago. I know, but I, it was so short. I like your analogy, Tony. You, you used that. I had never heard it before. You talked. You, you talked about at Climarize about boundaries being like a fence, with and there's a gate, and you could choose to open that gate or close it. But it's it's. I think that was isn't that wasn't that you were talking about boundaries when you or was am I mixing up an analogy? Yeah, it's 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 like a fence between you and your neighbor, right? And you, sometimes you open up the gate and you and your neighbor hang out and everything's great. Other times, you know, you kind of close the gate and. You just, you have that separation there. That's fine. And, and then sometimes, you know, the neighbor's kids who are painting your ass, the ball bounces over and you can choose to open the gate and start yelling and screaming, or you can just toss the ball back over and move on with your life. It's, you know, that's what boundaries are for. There's always a yeah. choice, right? It's yeah. not that you know, I think, and you get real deep on this, right? If you set boundaries up that are so tight that nothing can ever get across, that's what we call isolation. And that leads to depression. Right. Boundaries are meant to be crossed. It's when it's crossed, what do you choose to do about it? Right. right. So with a boundary must come like some type of permission slip, right? Yep. Hall pass. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. I mean, we, that can just come into a whole other conversation in itself. But no, that's awesome. Awesome way to sum it. I mean, like I said, the, the analogy really holds if you start to study trees and tree anatomies and how they form those chemical barriers, like they're not 100%. And if they were 100%, trees wouldn't be what trees right. are, right? And their cavities wouldn't become habitat and homes and, and allow other life forms to 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 exist and, and be, you know, be habitat for them within themselves even, you know. Their old yeah. wounds become others' homes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about for you, Dwayne? Like, what's been for you like one of the biggest catalysts of catalyst of doing? Well, let's say here, uh, you know, I'm I'm doing I'm pulling a you right now. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we come like those we hang out with. Um, <laughs> what would you say was your biggest influence of getting into a boar culture? What What was the turning point for you? Um, you know, I think it was, you know, inadvertently, first of all, it was my experience in at university when I decided to go to university and, uh, I, I was got a job on the grounds crew and I got put out the tree nursery so that I didn't know a thing about trees at that point. And it was just a summer job and it was off campus. So I was, I was, I was a captive audience to a couple tree nerd old nursery guys that love trees and were all about trees and, for as as only nursery people can be, and you know, is that no nursery people? They can be pretty intense, right? Like they, and they only talked Latin about trees in Latin form. They didn't use common names, and so I, I and I had no idea that that was gonna. But that inadvertently, and then when I went to college a couple of years later, and again, it was you know I have to say divine providence if I look back on it. To me, it was just weird set of circumstances, but 
I think there was a lot more going on than you know I was aware of at the time. But when I got to school, and I suddenly realized how that work experience totally made a huge difference in, like I was in an advantaged state going to my first year landscape horticulture school. And I was like, I had no idea that this work experience, and two things, it made it fun and it made school fun. And school had always been fun, but only because of sports and socialization. I never liked school work per se, but this made school fun and it gave me a sense of pride and belonging because I got good marks. And so suddenly I'm the top of the class. I look smart and I was really enjoying it. So it, it, that, it, 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 that was 1988 and I never have looked back. Like I've never left the industry. So it was just, and then the next pivotal part was finding teaching, you know, and, and being asked as I graduated because I had good marks. So tied back, Hey, you be good to teach this ID class off campus. We're running and a pre-apprenticeship program. And I, it was great. It was winter work. And that was the first time I made the correlation that I really liked to teach. And that was it. And, it, you know, I think subsequently to that, I've realized really what I like to do is teach. But it just so happens to be that my second passion is trees. And I like to teach. So teaching about trees is just the double whammy. And I would feel very gifted and fortunate to have found that somehow. And I don't really think I found it. I think it was gifted to me. Do you think there's other industries where people stay in it for 30, 35 years or got into second, third generations that have the same passion or connectivity as the arborist industry? I do. I do. Yeah. I do think there is. Yeah. I think people find, I think cabinet makers, I think people that do fine woodwork, yeah. uh, I think brick, yeah. stone masonry, masonry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any of the trades. Yeah, I could see. Any of the trades, really. I, even plumbers, I think, have. Like, I, I don't mean to minimize plumbing, but I mean, it's a shitty job, right? So, <laughs> I mean that punnily. Yeah, like there's even an art to it Absolutely. all and flow and where it goes and how it all works. I mean, it's not yeah. just, you know, you're not just plugging pipes together. There's no. a lot to it. Yeah. yeah. And if you, it gets hidden behind the walls. Yeah. And their it, work gets hidden behind the walls. Yeah, it's so. not seen as much. Yeah, it. I think for people that have, found what they really like to do and and not just that you know it's not enough that you really like what you do but it has to also sustain you not just spiritually emotionally but financially too like you can you can really love something if you can't make a living at it it's not going to be fun for long and you'll lose that fun right like like it there it needs to have a criteria an element of uh it has to be able to sustain you in all ways yeah. And unfortunately, we need to eat and, and, and I don't know if that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And, and, and in today's market, today, the way it is, you have to be able to, you know, afford a dwelling in food <laughs> or you can't yeah. really go on. Right? Well, the other thing with our industry, I mean, we, we were not like top of the trade, red sealed. We were trades. We were not red sealed. We were, have the most dangerous job, but definitely our pay didn't always reflect that. And you know, I, I see that slowly changing, but it's still tough to keep up. Like even with what our value is as a business to the consumer, yeah. um, most it's still people out there doing it for free, uh, but, you know, not really realizing what the cost of running a business is, let alone what the risks involved are and why 
we should, you know, I've, I've, people always ask me too in business, like, what's your biggest, uh, what's the biggest lesson you could give somebody new in business? And I just be like, you know what, keep your prices high, keep your price. And it's not, it has not, not to do with selfishness, but if you listen till the end of this, it's, you'll understand why, because you see a crew lead, there's people on the ground, they start as a groundsman or apprentice climber or whatever. How do they make more money? They make, they create more value. They get faster at their job. They get better at their job. They get more efficient. They critically think, and they continually do safe work. And their objective is to please you, right? And when they please you, then you give them a raise. And when, you know, it's not, it just sort of happens that way, like for lack of better words. And if your pricing is constantly down, your equipment is down, your morale is down, and your people are working much harder than they than they should be to get jobs done, and you sort of create this non-sustainable environment. But if you keep your prices up and you charge accordingly, I'm not saying like, you know, like making 222% on every job, like, you know, Moderna or Pfizer or anything like that, but like, but literally making good, profitable, where the where the crews can go in and do nice work together and safe work together and use good aboricultural practices. You have to charge for that. And it's going to create a safer environment for the staff, for the team. It's going to, morale is going to be up because you can buy nicer equipment. It's all part of the system that that's, that's important to remember. And it's not about greed. It's about getting people to where a place they deserve. I remember you told me this once, like it was like 20 years ago or so, maybe even more. We were coming, I think we were coming back from the first training site in Mississauga. And you're like, imagine being like the best sports team where you could hire the best of the best. And, you know, you were known for the fact that you ran a tree service that paid the highest and it's a difficult thing to do. You grow to 20, you grow to 25, or you age 15, whatever. The more you grow, the harder it is to do. If you're a three-person operation, it's easy to pay somebody, easier to pay somebody a larger sum of money every day than it is if you're at the, with a larger running company because of efficiencies and deficiencies, things we learn along the way. But that's one thing. If company owners and salespeople could realize that if they could keep their prices good and keep their prices up, they can create a safer environment because people aren't so pressured to work harder, faster, and get things done in a less safe manner. That's an interesting um, comment you make, and, and I appreciate it. It's, it's funny because Tony often asks our our guests what if they could do anything different or if they were a young climber starting out, what would they do and you kind of answered it from a, 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 a young arborist entrepreneur perspective. If you were starting a tree business, uh, what you just <laughs> said is kind of pretty good advice, isn't it? I would say yeah. it is really, you know, if you really think about it, if early years, <clears throat> you know, and, and if I'd have taken yours and Norm's advice years and years ago too of charging for every quote, imagine where it'd be now. It would have hurt for the first three years then, but you know, this free quote shit's got to go. Man. <laughs> like, why am I going out competing against seven companies that, to tell you something on what you should do with your trees and, you know, so you can go with the lowest price? Doesn't make any sense to me. But the unfortunate part is that's the world we live in. 
And that is, it's a difficult thing to change when you have the responsibilities to feed the mouths that you have to feed. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a scary road. Yeah. But one thing we've, what we've been doing is just testing it in different areas. Well, Tony, do you have any, have any sagely questions? And uh, we're drawing near to our natural segue for our, our podcast, but is there any, any, uh, I, Andrew kind of answered a question that you often ask in a little different way. So you got something different for him? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Tony. No, it's good. No, no, no. You answered my question before I could ask it, so that's good. You won, <laughs> won to Andrew. Tony, nothing. As for climbers, like if you know if you're new in the industry, the only thing I could say there would be to take a step back from your ego and surround yourself with great people. Like Tony said earlier, you want to be like people, then you know, surround yourself with those people. Yeah. yeah. What an amazing uh I you know, I had no idea where this podcast was gonna go or what was where what was gonna happen. Cause I mean, we all know each other so well and you know, you have sort of ideas, but I you know, I just came in very open minded and not attached to anything either, because it's uh there's so much to this industry. We could probably be talking for hours and hours yet on all different. On that note, we reserve the right to uh, for sequels and and uh, and re-interviews. Yeah. I'm not too worried about not seeing you guys. Either. No.